a seat. Take seats. <laughs> I'll mention it again. Y'all to stand to your feet this morning. I'm going to sing this hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Let's continue to wake up together.
together this morning. My name is Miles. I get to serve on staff here. If I haven't got the chance to meet you, I would love to do so after this gathering. Every, every morning we gather together uh, weekly and we hear from the word as a call to worship, uh, a piece of scripture of God's living word that sets our hearts and our minds on why we're here, who we're here to encounter. And my friend Noah is going to lead us in this call to worship and kind of set up this, this next time of, of worship. Like we just sang, we long for God to be our vision, to be our delight, to be our everything. He's truly the only one that can ever satisfy the longings of our souls. And we all walk in here with whatever that may be. They all come in different shapes and sizes, but he's available and he's near. And he invites us to, to taste and see his goodness and his grace that he lavishes on us day after day. So as we read this call to worship, I invite you guys to lift your hands in this ancient posture of prayerful expectation and surrender to God. And if you see underlined text on the screen behind me, I invite you guys to read that along with us, and I'll read the plain text. The Word says this, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Let's continue our worship this morning. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and, and delivered me.
you. I'm going to have a very simple prayer this morning. Just come, Holy Spirit. Meet us where we are. We long to see your face. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God, go ahead and be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's cool again. Praise the Lord. Thank God. It's cool again. Uh, my name is David. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I have the privilege of serving on staff. Uh, I've got a couple invitations for us this morning. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want us to continue in a posture of worship. Uh, as we receive our offering this morning, uh, this is an opportunity for us to stop uh, reflecting gratitude on what God has given us and give back to the ministry here that God is doing. If you're our guest this morning, please feel no obligation to give. Your presence here is gift enough in itself. If someone is your church home, I uh, would invite you to give generously to the ministry that God is doing here. Uh, in just a minute, the ushers are going to come forward, but before they do, on the screen behind me is a simple giving liturgy. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to simply align our minds and our hearts uh, with this moment in time and what we're doing with our hands. Uh, and so I want to invite you uh, here to read these words on the screen with me as we get ready to receive our offering this morning. There is nothing we have that we have not received. All we have and are belong to God, bought with the blood of Jesus, to spend everything on ourselves and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that our Father cannot abide. Holy Spirit, strengthen us to give generously until there are no needy among us. Amen. As the ushers come forward, have a couple invitations for you. Uh, if you are new or what we like to call new adjacent, maybe you've been around Soma for a while but doesn't quite feel like home yet, we just want to welcome you. Uh, there's a couple things that uh, I want to put in front of you to help you get more connected to what's happening here. The first is simply this Connect card. There should be a few of these on the row in front of you. This is an opportunity for you to fill this out. Uh, and if you're super fast, drop it in the offering baskets as they come past. If you don't have lightning fast pin speed, uh, drop it off at the welcome table on the way out. Uh, this just lets us know you're here, uh, lets us, uh, gives us a little uh, bit of information on how we can help you get connected, answer the questions that you've got. Uh, you can put prayer requests on here, whatever it is that we can help you with. Uh, would love to do that. Also in the basket outside the doors, you'll see this card says September. Uh, on the back of it is uh, kind of all the things that are going on here around the community in the month of September. Great ways to get connected and involved. Uh, would love to put that in front of you. Uh, first invitation for this morning uh, is kind of connected to that. After the 11 o'clock service, we're having our community feast. Uh, it'll be from 1230 until 2 o'clock. Uh, the timing for this is super intentional. Uh, right at the end of the summer season, coming into the fall season, an opportunity to regather, you know, kind of out of the, the helter-skelter summer rhythm. And we have also had a ton of new folks come and join us over the course of the summer. Uh, and this is really an opportunity for us to engage in generous hospitality. Uh, would love to invite you into that. Uh, when you come back and join us after the 11 o'clock, uh, if you see somebody new while you're in line, uh, grabbing a sandwich or waiting for the bounce houses or uh, to play basketball, something like that, just say hi. Uh, welcome them to Soma. If you want a Kickstarter question, highlight from the summer. It's an easy way to get involved into a conversation with somebody. Uh, help them feel welcome. Uh, one uh, quick housekeeping word on that. Uh, you know, you try to make plans and have them go elegantly and things look seamless. Uh, we had the bounce houses set to come up at 11 o'clock, so it'd be kind of in between the service time, not distracting. 
uh, we just got a call that they're going to come at 10, uh, which is right when Brandon's going to be making the turn in his sermon into like personal application. <laughs> so pay no attention to the giant monster truck in carousel out here uh, in the yard. Just want to emotionally prepare us all uh, for that. That's going to happen. Uh, thank you for bearing with us uh, in that. Uh, the second invitation for you is Thursday, September 7th at 7 o'clock. We're having a, a night of worship and prayer here. An opportunity just to gather and be ministered to by the Holy Spirit through worship, through prayer, uh, through time together, and to be and to minister to one another in that space as well. Seven o'clock here. Would love to see you there for that. Uh, last and certainly not least, uh, if you had a child who participated in our kids' summer art gallery, which can we stop and give a round of applause for that? That was amazing. Uh, your child's artwork is available for pickup in the prayer room uh, after the service. Uh, and also on your way out, stop and take a look uh, at the new gallery that's up featuring artwork uh, from children that have participated in the refugee program through Bethany Christian Services, who we partner with. It's a beautiful uh, gallery. Story from each child is underneath their artwork. It's a moment to pray for them as well. Uh, with that, we'd like to invite you to stand, greet each other, pass the peace. Soma kids, thank you so much for hanging with us here this morning. You are free to head to your classes downstairs.
Thanks, everybody. It's always beautiful when people don't want to stop talking because they love each other so much and are catching up. I'm going to uh, lead us in our prayer of renewal today, but before I do, I want to invite four people up onto the stage. Um, I, my name's Jean Roars. I lead the, it's called the Missions Partnerships Committee, but basically kind of like our, our missions committee, right? Um, everything except some of the, some of the pieces like Forehouse and, and um, other ministries inside of Indianapolis. But I would like to introduce you to four of the individuals that SOMA supports as missionaries uh, through Give Giving. And some of you have seen them before, but um, all four of these ladies are campus staff or work with parachurch organizations that serve college students. And with that, right now, I don't know if you guys have been seeing, if any of you have driven past a university or have been seeing anything on social media, but everybody's moving everybody in right now. And um, so th what that means for them is they're all getting ready to head back onto the mission field in a very serious way. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, I would love to have each of them share just a little bit about their name, organization that you serve with, um, if you serve on campus, what campus or in what capacity you serve that organization, and then a prayer request that you have. My name is Brooke Zentz. Um, I'm on staff with Crew, and I'm on campus at IEPUI. Um, so they are in full swing doing things, and we've been on campus for a week now. Um, I would say my main prayer for our team as we enter into this year is that we would be wise and seek the Lord in what we're able to do with more limited capacity on our staff team. But we want to honor the Lord and, and serve these students well with what we can do this year. I'm Katie Kamara, and I'm also at IUPUI with the Navigators, but I work specifically with international students, so you might see some of me sit with you mostly at the 11 o'clock, <laughs> but yeah, um, I yeah work with the Navigators, um, and I wanted to share really quickly, one way you could connect with the students is, uh, we have this QR code, I'll have it at the my table later, but um, we would love for church families and individuals to like kind of adopt a student or connect with them. International students really want to meet Americans, and yeah. So if there's a, if you're interested in that, there's a way you can connect there. Um, a prayer request I have is a specific one. I had a student from China, um, yeah, accept and trust the Lord this summer, which I'm really excited about. So um, she moved to Dallas for work. So we are going to start doing discipleship over FaceTime. So you could just pray for me as uh, we, we walk with Jesus together. I love that. So cool. Um, good morning. My name is Lauren McDonough, and I serve on staff with InterVarsity. Um, in my role specifically, I oversee fraternity and sorority ministry for InterVarsity in the states of Indiana and Illinois. So I get to supervise campus staff. I get to be on campus a little bit. I get to um, work on our hiring and our conferencing and all the things that help to reach fraternity and sorority students. 
Um, and I would say my big prayer request, we had a couple staffing transitions, and so um, I'm working to fill those gaps and to hire people. Um, but also, I get to practically fill those gaps by going to campus um, and serving and um, making sure that the ministry can continue. So, um, yeah, my big prayer request would, would be for just the hiring process and for new staff to come up through the pipeline um, and join our team this year. Good morning. Um, I'm Allison Reed. I also work for Crew, um, not on the same team as Brooke, but same organization. And I am the intern coordinator for five states in our area. Um, so I lead 25 interns that are all at different campuses throughout the Midwest. I also um, am something we call a capacity liaison that you don't have to understand, but I care for a couple hundred staff that are behind the scenes staff, um, and I'm their point person for our staff care team and I'm the community facilitator for the MD office in Westfield, so just like a few roles. Um, and so prayer requests for me, my interns are starting their year just like the campus folks are, and but they're brand new. Like they just graduated from college and they're trying to figure out how to be an adult and also how to be um, campus ministry. And so I just pray, like ask you to pray for them. Um, they're just like little sheep wandering and trying to figure it out. So if you could pray for them, that would be great. Thanks, ladies. But um, as as we pray for and over them, if you guys wouldn't mind just extending a hand as we send them back off, um, I one other prayer request I'll just add to what they is kind of an unspoken prayer request. But I was my first job out of college was a, as a campus staff, Amy Jager as well, and so they're raising funds all the time. That's how their job works. So I'll just also invite us all to pray for that process that they that their funds would be able to be raised if you have any desire to do that feel free um so can we pray for them lord thank you for um the feet that share the good news um how beautiful that is and as they get acquainted with the students this year and with the ministries on campuses, Lord, I just pray that you would um, just move in and through them, that more people would come to know you, have faith in you. For those students who are away from home especially, and maybe even they grew up in um, Christian homes, but this is the first time to kind of test their feet uh, away from home, Lord, would you just empower uh, these ladies and these ministries to um, watch for those signs of you uh, needing to step into lives and 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 you uh, would they partner with you coming alongside um, students in and so Lord I just pray for your spirit to be alive and active on camp college campuses um, and I pray especially that you would sustain them that you would sustain them spiritually, that you would sustain them relationally, and that you would sustain them financially. Amen. Thank you. Uh, just so you guys know, after the service, they do have tables out in the foyer. So I'd invite you to go talk to them, learn about what they do, ask your questions. Um, they'll also be at the family feast later as well. So I'm going to read our scripture passage for today. It is from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. Therefore, 
everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Jeannie. Good morning, everyone. My name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here at Sonoma Midtown. As we get started in our teaching time, as we do each week, I just want to invite you to put your stuff down for a moment and take a couple of big, deep breaths and get grounded in your body. You walk in here um, distracted, maybe. Lots going on in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. And so we just want to just imagine that God is with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here speaking to us, longing to commune with us. This is why we were created. And this is what we get reminded of each week as we come into this place. And so let's take a moment just to kind of center our thoughts and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And then I'll pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just invite you to speak now. We open ourselves, a whole person, body, mind, soul, spirit to you as you come and as you speak words that we can hear and understand and obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, folks, we have come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount today. It's sad. We've been journeying through and our longer study of Matthew here in this little section in the Sermon on the Mount. So today, uh, we're going to wrap it up. And, um, and to start this teaching, um, I was thinking about this this morning. During the pandemic, I noticed something happened to me, and I don't know if any of you experienced this. But all of the sort of just, uh, I remember like, you know, early to mid-2020, all of the sort of complexity of being a pastor and having to figure out what it meant to be a pastor and shepherd a congregation that I couldn't see except uh, on the other end of a camera uh, with so much just, you know, anxiety and chaos and fighting and all this stuff. There was just, I think I reached this saturation point uh, as we went through that year getting to the end of 2020 into 2021 where um, all of the complexity, right, because as a pastor, we were sort of expected to master theology political science, epidemiology, sociology, 
world history. I mean, like, that, that's sort of what it felt like week in and week out. It's like all of these, the world is on fire. And if you could just take your little cup as a pastor and try to douse that fire, that'd be amazing. Um, and I think, you know, all of that complexity of having to really think hard about a lot of different things in a short amount of time, coupled with uh, some, some uh, folks like to critique, uh, you know, what was said. You didn't say this. You said this. I didn't like how you emphasized this. or You know, and that, that was just sort of every week. And after a couple months of that, I just remember getting to this place where uh, I, I just had, like, brain fog, right? Like, I, I couldn't prepare a sermon, and this, this is what I do. It, it was sort of like a writer's block if you're a writer. It, it was just brain fog, um, and, I, and I really developed almost, like, a sense of panic each week about preaching and, like, anxiety, and I literally couldn't, like, it was just such a chore to finish a sermon that I just reached this place of exhaustion where I was like, man, I, I don't know what's going on, but I feel terrible. And I remember just going to the elders and the board and saying, like, I, something has to, I need a break. I've got to restructure. Like, I don't know what's going on. And as I was sort of researching this and thinking about this, looking at, like, burnout, um, things from, like, a clinical standpoint, um, one of the terms that I came to get familiar with was the term cognitive overload. I don't know if you're familiar with this term. You maybe you've, you're like, this is my life. I'm a, I'm a mom. I'm a dad. Uh, I, I'm a manager. This is, this is my life. Um, cognitive overload is this state of mental exhaustion that occurs when the demands that are placed, you have kind of two uh, types of memory. You have working memory and you have long-term memory. And when the demands placed on your working memory, which is where you take in new information, exceed your capacity to assimilate that into long-term memory and store that and live out of that, um, too much information, new information and processing at one time actually hinders transferring from working to long-term memory. And that's just sort of, I mean, normal life, right? Like, that's, that's one example of my life in the pandemic. But really, we live in an age which we call the information age, right? It's an age of saturation. It's, it's this mid-20th century shift from an industrial economy to an information technology-driven economy, and now what we call a digital age. You've probably seen this next slide, the, the knowledge doubling curve somewhere, Sometime, you know, we went from a time just a century ago where knowledge doubled every 400 years to now today, uh, and this is probably dated, uh, knowledge doubles every 12 hours. 90% of all of the world's data has been generated in the last two years. Think about that for a second. It, should, it might give you anxiety just to look at that curve. <laughs> and to think about how much you're expected to, to know and, and master. Now we think about artificial intelligence and how that's going to continue to, to proliferate this. I mean, we, here's the reality of, of the time in which we live. We have access to more information and content than ever before. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is that translating to a life of wisdom and virtue and human flourishing? Lots of information. But there's a disconnect often between the information that we have access to and the lives that we're actually living and the wholeness and the goodness that we long to experience. Neil Postman, probably one of the uh, most important media critics uh, of the last generation in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which you've not read, it is a fascinating and very significant read. Um, he says this, he says, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. Thank your, your college degree. 
It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information. We have no control over it. We don't know what to do with it. And this is the reality that we face. I don't know if you feel like this. Like, I, I have four kids. And um, something as simple as choosing an elementary school or a, a middle school or a high school all of a sudden can be panic attack inducing. So many variables. I mean, our tendency when we're facing a problem, right, whether it's a work problem or a parenting problem or a marriage problem or a life problem is what? Google it. Research it. Drill down to the bottom of it. Get to root causes. Has anybody ever gotten to a root cause? I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I ever get down to the root. And so we live with this anxiety, and more information is not translating into a better, more whole, more flourishing society. And so the question we're left with is, how do we move beyond information and content to the kind of transformation that we all long to experience. And this is what Jesus is going to get to here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, and, and, and by therefore, he's summarizing again the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, after all you've just heard me say about what it means to live a flourishing life, everyone who hears these words of mine, now, let's just stop right there. These words of mine, again, refer to the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to pay attention again. We, going back to the beginning, we said this when we started Matthew. Uh, pay attention to what Matthew's doing from a literary standpoint. Matthew is a brilliant storyteller, and he's an editorial genius. And, he, and what he's doing here is he's nesting multiple layers of meaning through not just content, but the way he structures his material. He's doing his best. We, I use the analogy of Christopher Nolan. Let's use a local example. Kurt Vonnegut, if you're a big Kurt Vonnegut fan, I mean, that's what he does. He just layers and layers and layers. You have to pay attention to the deeper meaning. The way that Matthew divides his biography of Jesus' life and teaching is into five literary blocks, okay? Now, does that sound familiar? What, what Jesus, I mean, if you think about five, the importance of five in the Old Testament, what Matthew is doing is intentionally drawing on Israel's story and linking Jesus and Moses, five teaching blocks synonymous with the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Each of the five blocks in Matthew begins with a teaching followed by a chunk of narrative that puts flesh and blood characters with personal stories onto the teaching. And then it ends with this little literary seam that you see in verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, underline and highlight that. Because it shows up four more times in the book of Matthew at the beginning or sometimes the end of these teaching blocks. One here in the Sermon on the Mount, another one in block two at the end of a, uh, the, be, uh, the beginning of a section on mission and being a witness, another one in block three in the parables in chapter 13, another in block four with the new community that God is forming in Matthew 19, and then at the end of block five, the last one 
on judgment. And, and there he says, when he had finished saying all these things, tying it all together to bring it to a close. And the theme that's running throughout these teaching blocks is what one scholar calls revelation and separation. In other words, God is revealing himself and his kingdom in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he's inviting a response, right? That's what we see all throughout the warnings here at the end. There's a narrow way. There's, a, there's one narrow gate, right? There's this invitation, and it separates people into two groups, not the good guys and the bad guys or the good gals and the bad gals. That's not the grouping. The grouping is based on who responds to Jesus and who doesn't. That's the separation. And so in content and structure, I just want you to see this, and we could nerd out and go so much deeper, but just I just want you to see what Matthew's doing here before we jump into what he's saying. Matthew is wanting to present Jesus as a new Moses, with a new law, a new Torah, a new kingdom vision and manifesto, and seeking to form a new people and bring about a new society. This is not just about starting a new church or starting a new religion or a new ideology. It's a new way of life with a new people for a new world. That's what Jesus is doing. It's pretty compelling and beautiful, right? This is it. This is the kingdom of God. So how do we access this reality? That, that's what Jesus wants us to see. It's not just a vision. We need a vision. We need an imagination, right, for what we were designed to become as human beings. And that's what he's given us in the kingdom. But we also need to know how do we access it, right, so that it becomes more than just a galaxy far, far away. It actually comes near to us, and we have access to get into it and have our lives transformed. And so Jesus continues Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does what? Acts on them. Again, Jesus is tapping Israel's tradition and their memory with the use of this word here. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but the word here was a huge deal to an Israelite. Any good Jew would have immediately hyperlinked in their mind back to something called the Shema. Maybe you've heard of the Shema in Deuteronomy, chapter 6. This was taught to children at an early age. They memorized this. They prayed it. They, they talked about it in their homes. They recited it twice a day. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. That's the beginning of the Shema. This word hear or listen is one of the most frequent invitations from God to his people in the Bible. It's mentioned over 1,500 times. And one of the biggest critiques that God issues to his people is not just about their moral behavior, but about their failure to listen, to hear, to Shema. For a Jew, though, hearing was different than how we approach hearing today. Again, in an information and content-saturated world. We listen to dozens of hours of decontextualized, disembodied, digital content. From, I mean, think about this. It's kind of weird. We listen to this content dozens of hours. Complete strangers that we've never met who are paid. Remember, there's an advertising model here. They're paid. There's a business model. 
to offer opinions and perspectives, searching for emotional resonance. We're looking for emotional resonance. But here's the thing, with zero expectation that we'll actually do anything about what we hear. You ever heard somebody like, go, oh man, listen to this podcast, it really resonated with me. Did you ever ask them the question, don't, don't be a smart aleck, but you should ask them sometime, what did you actually do about that? Oh, no, 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 it's just like, it's cool, it resonated with it. What? A Jewish person would be like, what are you talking about? To hear biblically, to hear like a Jew, to hear like Jesus would have heard growing up was an embodied experience, right? You could see the people teaching you. You're in a community. Truth was conveyed by trusted spiritual authorities in the context of a tradition or a community with a moral vision that carried, and here's the key, an implicit invitation to obey or act upon what you heard. So you, the, literally this word Shema, hear, means hear and obey. Hear and give heed to. Now it's interesting, why? Why would the word hear have multiple meanings? Well, in biblical Hebrew, there were only 8,000 words or so. Now contrast that to English where we have upwards of 400,000 words. So there's less words in the Hebrew, but they're stuffed with meaning. Think of like unpacking a suitcase when you get on, on a trip. Like you gotta unpack your suitcase to get to the depth. And, and Hebrew verbs really were about stressing action and effect instead of just mental activity. When we hear hear or listen, we think of a mental cognitive process. But to a Jew, it implied action, something that starts inside and then moves its way out into your life. The biblical words for listener hear could be translated obey or give heed to. And if you look at Greek, it's the same. The root words translated obey and obedience in the Greek New Testament also mean listen, so it goes both ways. Interestingly, you see the same thing if you research the etymology of the words hear and listen in Latin and English. The English root for obedience literally means listening from below. Obedience, then, is a sort of cuss word in our moment, but it, it, like, it's a sort of deep listening listening with your whole person, listening not just with your mind, but with your body, your heart, and your will, and then acting on what you heard. So Jesus is picking up on this tradition from the Old Testament, on this pairing of hearing and obeying, and he's taking it from implicit to explicit. Whoever hears my words and acts upon them, which would have been one and the same for a Jew, but he's bringing together, let no man put asunder what God has joined together, bringing them back together. And, and this word here for act is this word poieo. Poieo, this is the word, which can be translated act or do or make or practice. Poieto is a key concept for Matthew. It's mentioned 86 times in the book of Matthew. 22 of those in the Sermon on the Mount, and of those 22, 10 show up in the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. But you probably can't see them if you're reading in English. It's hard to see it in English. But if you look back to verse 17, where Jesus says, a good tree produces good fruit, that's the word poieto, produce or makes. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, only those who actually do, that's poieto, 
the will of my Father in heaven will enter in. And again, if you notice the literary structure of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew bookends Jesus' 14 teachings with this invitation to practice. So he's thinking it's kind of important, right? It's 519. What does it look like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees? Whoever practices and teaches these commands from the heart will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. Are you getting Matthew's drift? Practice is kind of a big deal. Now, if you've been around Soma for any amount of time, you will hear us constantly talking about our vision to become disciples who what? Please, Lord, practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Did we just make that up out of thin air? Practice the way of Jesus. What? What a novel concept for church. Practice the way of Jesus. We didn't make it up. It, 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 Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount is the source. Thank God we don't have to come up with some original vision for being a church. Hear my words and act upon them. Practice them. And the words, of course, being Jesus' teaching. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to experience transformation and life in my kingdom, then it's really simple. You have to follow me and practice my way. Now, this is hard for us. Everybody's like, yeah, 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 okay, I know. But, like, is it, though, that easy? Like, we know, but do we know? Like, this is not how we as Westerners approach transformation. We have some barriers. There are four primaries, just thinking about this and meditating on this, there are four primary frameworks in Western culture for how we approach transformation. And, and usually we're, we're employing several of these simultaneously. And, and most of us, like, like, do you have a model of change? You ever thought about, like, how people change? Do you have a model of change? Like, if you're in business, like, there, you have a theory of change. Like, we do this, we produce this product, and here's the impact it's going to have in culture. If you're in philanthropy or something, you're familiar with that term. But do we have a model for how people change? Do you know what your model is? I, I see four in the ways that, uh, as I see people approaching it and talking about it. The first one, the most prominent one, I think, in the West is information, right? It's what we talked about earlier. Transformation happens through mastering information and content. Download the content and matrix, you know, you become an awesome person. We have this glut of access to information. And think about that in the church. Again, more access, like the doubling curve is not just like information technology. It's, it's Christian content. We have Bible studies classes, podcasts, sermons. And look, I'm all for information. I'm an input on the strengths finders. I love content. But here's the thing. Having access to content doesn't mean that we know how to sift through content, interpret content, and live it out in a meaningful way. Right? Which is called wisdom in the Bible. How many of you, how many of us, Know more information than you could possibly live out in a lifetime. You're educated beyond your intelligence. Your problem is not more information. Your problem is doing the information you already have. 
That's why uh, one of the, the founder of Wired, I think, once said, like, I'm just going to stop reading for a year. He said this, like, back in 2020, because I already know too much. I need to just start doing some of it. How many, and, and like, it's like, okay, but like, how many of you know people, parents, friends, they, they've mastered all this information about God, about theology, they could break down the Hebrew and Greek, and they could tell you all the sources, and, and they could link it back to this Old Testament passage, and they've mastered Bible content, and yet, they're jerks. <laughs> They're like anxious people. They're reactive. They're perfectionistic. They're rude. All the while, completely unaware. Out of touch with how they're probably living out of some deep parent wounds. Trauma. Their stories, their shadow side. Completely unaware. And if we're honest, all of us to some degree are unaware. And if you want to know where you're unaware, just ask people that know you well. How do you experience me? I, I dare you to ask that question if you're brave enough. How do you experience me? Because we all know there's a massive dis- difference between cognitively knowing the right answers about something and actually living it out on a deeper level or even on a deeper level than that, wanting to live it out in our real lives. What we want is to move from knowing about something to believing something so deeply in our body's muscle memory that our automatic response to life situations, particularly hard and painful and crisis-type situations, our instincts, you might call them, gradually become more and more like those of Jesus, not like those patterns that we've learned growing up. And that requires a transformed heart. Right? More than information. Not, not less than information, but so much more. And it requires transformed desires. Again, information is necessary for transformation, but by itself, it's not enough. We must develop Christ-like instincts. I love that phrase from Donald Craybill. Um, he says, discipleship is usually not a grand calling or a spectacular act of martyrdom. Rather, it is a set of Christ-like instincts and reflexive responses of love that gradually take shape in our lives over a period of years. We immerse ourselves in Scripture and an awareness of His presence. And then when we have to respond quickly to a life situation, we are more likely to act in a way that is a credit to our Lord. So information is not enough. The other way I think is a primary way in the West is inspiration, right? This is the idea that transformation happens through emotional encounter and experience, Right? Think about church. It's like if we can just get in a room or like a Christian concert or whatever. It's like we can get in the room, turn the lights off. I had a friend who loved going to his uh, mega church in New York City. And after a little while, he's like, I, I, I know why people like going into a dark room and yelling in New York City. Because they, they'd spend their life on Wall Street. <laughs> it says like getting in the right room, whipping up the right feelings, the right vibes the right experience and environment with the right people and probably the right coffee. You know, think about when you've been moved by like a really good film or a really beautiful album, Gregory Isakoff, something like that, or a concert performance. 
or a worship service on Sundays. And here's the thing, you're inspired in the moment, you're like, oh, I want to be a better human being. But then a few hours later or a few days later, you're right back to your old self. Nothing changed. Inspiration alone doesn't lead to transformation. Insight is another way we pursue that in the West. Therapeutic insight, transformation happens through enlightened moments of insight. Therapy, meditation, go on a good hike in the mountains, and you have this deep insight about God or about the world or a pattern or a narrative or a habit that just brings this moment of clarity. You ever had like that moment of clarity where you're like, oh my gosh, there's before this insight and after this insight. But even that often doesn't transform us. We live in a therapeutic culture. Now I'm all for therapy, right? But we live in a therapeutic culture where we have so much awareness. We know more about ourselves than any generation in history. We know more about our stories, our past, our genograms, our ancestry, our bodies, the natural world, psychology, sociology, neurobiology. But again, you know people who have so much insight and they could speak the language of therapy and yet their life is a complete disaster. Because insight alone doesn't lead to transformation. And the last thing that we try to do is willpower, right? If all else fails, try harder, power up. Power up and power through. Now, again, I am pro-willpower. Christians are down on willpower. I say if willpower works, do it. The problem is it just doesn't work a whole lot. Psychologists tell us that willpower is like a muscle that depletes over time. It works on small and superficial changes, But man, in the face of addiction, willpower doesn't stand a chance. In the face of trauma and deep wounds and false narratives and idols, willpower's not enough. In the end, willpower leads us in this vicious cycle of pride or shame. That's just really exhausting, if we're honest. Willpower alone doesn't lead to lasting transformation. So when you hear Jesus say, hear these words of mine, and act on them, put them into practice, please don't think, try harder. That's not good news, friends. Right? It's not good news. Think of the difference between trying to do something and training to do something. That's what Jesus is talking about with practice. Right? Um, If you ever trained, like for a musical instrument, Right? If you play a musical instrument or if you've uh, you know, taken on a new role as a manager and you go through management training or think about a couple years ago, my wife, uh, Emily, ran, uh, started getting into half marathons and never run half marathons. What you know about a marathon is if you just try to get up off the couch one day and try really hard, you will die. That's just what happens unless you're a genetic freak. Okay, But like for the most of us, there's the couch potato to 5K and then there's the half marathon, you know. And, and, and so Emily went through this really rigorous process. She had this big, long training program, and she would start with a mile, and then two miles, and then three miles, and there were all these small practices and habits that she built up over time that allowed her eventually to do what she couldn't do at the beginning. She was eventually to access a deeper power in her body that allowed her to become the kind of person who ran a half marathon twice. And she, the second one she ran was the 2012 Indy half marathon, which, and if you remember, people died at that half marathon. It was like the hottest one ever. It was crazy, and she ran it. It's amazing. I, I can't run more than like three miles. That's, that's how spiritual practice works. There, as Dallas Willard says, activities within our power, things that we can do that enable us to accomplish that which we cannot currently do by direct effort. So we do by indirection, 
so that one day we can eventually do by direct effort. This is what the writers of the New Testament talk about all over the place. 1 Timothy 4, being one that comes to mind, have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Train yourself. The word there is the same word for gymnastics. Train yourself. Exert energy and effort in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. For this reason, again, this is Paul, champion of grace. For this reason, we labor and we strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people. So it requires effort. Love what Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We do not drift into discipleship. And again, this is not legalism. This is not, I do this so God will love me. It's God already loves me. And so in joyful response to his love for me, because I'm already in the kingdom, I'm going to train as a person who's seeking to grow as a spiritual athlete in the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the imagery. The goal of training is not to practice. You will fail at practicing. And if you haven't yet, you haven't trained very hard. You will fail, and that's the point. It's not about mastering the practice. It's about learning to be with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus in your character, and then out of that character, as you hear and obey over time, you become capable of doing the kinds of things that Jesus would do, and here's the key, if he were you. You're not trying to do his life. That's already been done. You're trying to live your life as if Jesus would do it if he were here in your body with your mind, your personality, your strengths and weaknesses. It's this deep integration of our whole person. We're realigning mind, body, soul, spirit. That's why it's more than information. It's, it's embodied. It's things that we do with our bodies, our whole self. And it's about integration. That's the key. Not inspiration, not information, not insight, not willpower. Integration of the kingdom of God is what transforms us. That's what Jesus is after. Again, Dallas Willard here. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. Put another way. If we want the life of Jesus, and that's what he's offering us here, life, life to the full. If we want the life of Jesus, we have to learn to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. That is not legalism. That is Jesus' words to us. And that's why we have this paradigm for transformation. Our model of change is very simple, and most of it's based on the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the next slide. This is how we think people change. Truth which is just to say reality, as embodied in the person and teachings of Jesus Christ. So that's information is important. Concepts, the kingdom of God, learning about righteousness and learning scripture is important, but that's not enough. It has to be practiced. It has to be trained into our muscle memory inside of a community. Jesus is talking here to a community. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. You are this new humanity. And oh yeah, by the way, you don't have the power to do this on your own. So you need to open yourself to a power that is outside of yourself, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to give to you as you go and make disciples. 
That is the process for becoming more like Jesus, transforming and offering up our transforming presence to the world. It comes straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Teachers of the way of Jesus historically have broken down practice into two basic categories. So what, what are the practices, right? Like, okay, you're, like, what is it? What are we supposed to do? Give us the training manual. Practices of disengagement on the one hand, that, that those are things that we withdraw or refrain from to get in touch with our inner life and the Holy Spirit, right? So maybe you, you struggle with some sort of addiction or you can't keep your mouth shut. You're just always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or offending people or you're rude or you're whatever. Okay, so we have these practices like silence, like, hey, can you just be quiet? Proverbs says, where there's a multitude of words, there's no lack of sin. Can you just, can you just stop? save you a lot of trouble. Solitude, can you get away and be with God and be alone by yourself? Blaise Pascal, all the problems of men arise from not being able to stay in the room and be quiet. Simplicity, abstaining from consumption for the sake of generosity, fasting, chastity, secrecy, listening. These are things we refrain from to get more in touch with God and the Holy Spirit inside of us, his desires for us, listening to him. And then there's disciplines of engagement, right? Some of us struggle with more passivity. Some of us struggle, we're too reflective, we're too introspective. Again, spiritual formation in the way of Jesus is not introverted wellness spirituality, right? Like we got to engage the world. Everything we're learning, all this stuff that we're taking in has to go out into the world. Things that we intentionally do to partner with God to bring heaven to earth. Things like worship and celebration and service and prayer and healing and community and confession and submission and, and generosity and all kinds of other things. This is just a, a list from like the Sermon on the Mount and Scripture. Anything can be a spiritual practice if it opens you to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and leads you to become a person of love. Anything, a glass of wine or not, depending on your constitution and your story, a nice long walk in the woods can be a spiritual practice. A good conversation with a friend can be a spiritual practice. A nice meal, well-prepared, can be a spiritual practice. I don't know about McDonald's, but I do it anyway. The point is that it's through these practices that God, through the Holy Spirit, disrupts destructive patterns in our lives and reorients our whole person to, as we'll talk about in a few weeks in our vision series, to become people who love God wholeheartedly, with my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors ourselves. And think of this not as a one-time thing, but think of this like a good Hoosier, right? Think about doing laps around the brickyard, right? Laps, it's one lap after another lap after another lap, like a spiral that continues to go and to go and to go. Until when? Until you die. That's what we're doing, we're being formed. We're allowing Jesus to form us over a long period of time so that we develop the set of Christ-like instincts so that when life gets crazy, we learn to more and more respond the way that Jesus wants us to respond and the way he would respond if he were living our life. Now, I, we don't have time to get into this parable. I, 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 we're yeah, short on time, long on material, long on content as we're talking about hearing and obeying content. But to illustrate why this matters, why practice matters, Jesus tells a beautiful story that would have been very relevant 
and would have driven this into his hearer's imagination. It's a parable about two builders, the wise builder, the phronimos builder, a wise, thoughtful, intelligent person, which has roots in Judaism and Greco-Roman philosophy, and we don't have time to get into that. And then the foolish builder, this is the word moros, from which you get moron. So the intelligent one and the moron. That's literally what Jesus says. And this can be translated really stupid or thoughtless or imprudent. The wise person, Jesus says, builds their home on the rock, while the foolish person builds their home on the sand. Again, very familiar rock and sand to Jesus' audience in, in, a, in a society, in a geography where people built uh, either on hard, rocky soil up in the hills or uh, down close to the Sea of Galilee. For those who didn't have access to those resources, the train was a bit sandier. In the rabbinical teaching of Jesus' day, your home was a metaphor for your life. So Jesus invites his disciples to build their lives intelligently on the rock, on his teachings, in contrast to the disciple who builds foolishly on sand, who hears but doesn't practice his teaching in, in their everyday lives, in every area of their lives. And again, he's not talking here about Christians and pagans. He's talking about two kinds of disciples. One disciple hears his words and doesn't do anything about it. They go to church. They listen to lots of sermons. They podcast sermons at the gyms. Love that teaching. It was so amazing. It really resonated. They read lots of Christian books, but they don't actually obey. That's the contrast. And we don't, we're not told why. Maybe they thought Jesus' teachings were naive. Like, yeah, Jesus was on the wrong side of history. I, I don't know. Maybe he was too impractical, too outdated. Or maybe they were just too wounded. They were too apathetic, too busy, too distracted. It, he doesn't say, and he also doesn't say anything about the nature of their houses, right? Like, did they build a condo or a single family? Mid-century bungalow or 19th century Victorian, modest or lavish, I, he doesn't say. Literally, the only difference between the two is what? Foundation. In other words, these two people look exactly the same on the surface. If you looked at them, you could not tell the difference. Both living their lives, going to church, attending missional community, serving, attending dinner parties, working good jobs, raising their families, but he says there comes a point when life hits them and, and the foundation gets exposed. Rains and floods come in, which again were metaphors in the climate of Palestine, both for actual things that happen, villages near wadis that would experience flash flooding. But, but really, Jesus is drawing also back on the prophetic imagination of the Old Testament. Rains and floods are both the difficulties and trials of life and judgment day. And I think he's talking about both. He's saying there's going to come a time for all of us. This is why practicing the way of Jesus matters. This is not just about morality or religion. Here's why it matters. Because there's going to come a time in your life and mine when what you're building your life on will be exposed. You are building your life on something or someone's teachings. And you may not even realize it. There's going to come a time. It might not be right now. It might not be this week or next week or even next year. But it is coming when you will get that diagnosis. You will walk through that mental health crisis. You will lose your job. Your spouse will walk away from you. You will be betrayed by your friends. You will be overwhelmed by those suppressed and maybe even unchosen sexual desires. You will fail your boards. You will get caught up in an addiction that you can't seem to quit. Your children will go crazy. 
And here's what you're going to find out. That all the levers that you pull in your 20s, and maybe for some of you that are like super disciplined in your 30s, maybe you'll make it to your 30s, pulling the lever of willpower. But you're going to find that at some point what worked for you in your 20s and 30s will not get you through your 40s and 50s and beyond. And and notice both the wise and the foolish experience the same trials and tribulations. Nobody's exempt. Doesn't matter how godly you are. Doesn't matter how righteous you are. Life will happen to you. That's not God's curse on you. That's just living in a cursed world. So it's going to happen. Nobody's immune from struggle. Nobody's immune from suffering. So if you look out right now and you think, nobody understands me, okay, but they will. And there are lots of people around the world who do. We are the exception to that, not the norm. And I love that Jesus is so realistic about that. You're going to experience it. It will hit you. When the floods and the suffering hit, here's the simple point. One endures, and one, literally the word here is mega collapses. One life stands, not because the person's amazing and has a bunch of willpower, but because the house is built on the rock of Jesus' teaching. And one crashes and implodes because it's built on the sand. I love this uh, Dale Bruner commentator on this passage. He says, Jesus almost always describes the Christian life in terms of survival rather than sensation. (laughs) Right? Like in that, we just want to survive. (laughs) That's what we're just trying to do. We're trying to survive. And Jesus says, if you want to survive, pay attention to what you're building your house on. And so that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. What are we building our lives on? What's the organizing center of our lives? Everyone is building their foundation on something, some truth, some philosophy, the words of a teacher, an ideology. Maybe you're building your house on success or the American dream or wealth or status or power, sex or pleasure or leisure or self-expression or religious moralism. The question is, do you know what you're building your life on? And is it leading you to become the kind of person God designed you to be? As as Dr. Phil says, how's it working for you? And can it stand the test of time when the difficulties of life come? Can it it produce the kind of resilience that you're going to need as a disciple when the storms of life hit? What I love about Jesus is he honors our dignity and our agency. He doesn't force us to do anything. He doesn't coerce us. He's an invitational wisdom teacher. He tells this beautiful story, and then he just invites us. He gives us the freedom to locate ourselves in the story, and then to discover and choose what we want for ourselves. That's it. Build your house on my teaching or don't. I'm telling you this is the way to life, and I'm telling you this will lead to destruction, but you must discover that for yourself. Whether you discover that early and you decide to choose that way early, or you're the kind of person that has to learn through the school of hard knocks. Maybe some of you are there right now, and I don't say that with any sort of shame. I've learned plenty of lessons in the school of hard knocks. And Jesus warns us, and it ought to wake us up. It ought to to be like smelling salts. And that's why the people were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching because his teaching was different. They were amazed, and they were terrified all at the same time. Like, this guy is reading our mail. He is speaking about reality in a way that resonates with our souls, and we've never experienced anything like it. But you know what? They fall into the same trap that we talked about earlier. They're amazed by his teachings, and you see this all through the book of Matthew. They hear his teachings. They see 
his spiritual authority because he doesn't just talk about it. The thing about Jesus is he lives every single one of these words, which makes him the possessor of a kind of authority that we can't understand and comprehend today. But he lived it out. And they were amazed. But I, I see their amazement, and Jesus sees their amazement as something to be avoided, not emulated. He says, don't be amazed throughout the Gospels. Don't be amazed. Don't just be surprised. Don't just be like, wow, that resonated, and then walk away. And, and I, and I want to just, as we close and go to communion, I, I, I think that's the invitation for us here, right? To move from astonishment, maybe for some of us, or just hearing the words of Jesus to apprenticeship to Jesus, where we actually practice his way, right? We actually practice his way. How do we, how do, we do that? What, is that? what does that look like? Very simply, to practice the way of Jesus is to trust Jesus with the whole of your life, to believe that Jesus was the greatest teacher to ever lived. He taught the kingdom of God, and he was Messiah and Savior, all in one God-man come to the earth to live the life that we couldn't live, to teach the way of the kingdom, to show us what it looked like, and then to lay down his life to give us access to the kingdom of God. He didn't just teach it, he showed it, and he sacrificed for it. And then he invites us to follow him, to trust him, to love him, to practice his way as we grow in knowing him and loving him. And, and that just is just real simple. That starts with the identity, right? A shift in how we understand and see God and see ourselves and see his kingdom, right? Re learning to reimagine God. Father, Son, and Spirit is good. Is a God who loves us, who, who is for us, who in Jesus has come near to us, who doesn't stand off in the dif, di, distance just critiquing us and, and judging us, but actually drew near and took the judgment on himself. And so we reimagine this kind of God and this kind of beautiful kingdom, and we think, wow, this is more than just rules and try harder guilt and shame. This is actually like the most beautiful proposition, the most beautiful offer ever made. And, and we receive that, and we say like, man, what, like I was created to flourish that way. I was created to flourish in a relationship with Jesus. And so I ask the question, who am I, and what kind of person do I want to become? I am a person dearly loved by my Father, created for a relationship with him, created to know him and to love him and to live in his, in his kingdom and to participate in the renewal of all things. That's who I am. And so we, we, we start with this identity-based approach to, to practice, right? I am a beloved child of God. I am in relationship with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's not just Bible. Like, if you read psychology, like the, the whole psychology of habits, James Clear, how do we develop new habits? We start with identity, right? I'm not just a person who's trying to quit smoking. I'm a person who doesn't smoke and then I quit smoking. It's identity shift. And, and Jesus is saying, this is who you are. Embrace your identity. But, but do it from a place of realism, right? Realism. Let's do away with idealism, right? Idealism's killing us in the church. Don't start with who you think you should be. Start with where you're actually at right now. Your season of life. What does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? I don't know. There's hundreds of you in here. There's hundreds of different starting points, but it has to be real, like where I'm at right now in this season of life, with this, these limitations, with these gifts, my personality, my gender, my age, my chronic health issues, God has, any, has yet to bless anyone except exactly where they are. 
So we start with where we're at, and we just say, what, what, God, what, what do you want from me? What, what do I want? Maybe you look around at your relationships, or you look inside and say, what's not working? And you just start there. What's the biggest pain point in your life right now, in your relationships? You anxious? Are you angry? You can't stop speaking hurtful words to people. You can't stop pulling away and withdrawing from people. Let's just start there with one invitation from the Spirit. What would it look like to obey the Spirit's invitation this week, to put into practice silence or solitude or service or submission to God or celebration or whatever, and just step towards that change that God's inviting, just to commit to that right where I'm at and just say, God, I don't need to be perfect this week. How about I just stink a little bit less by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I get 10% better this week. And then we just experiment, right? We experiment. Learning is just experimenting thousands and thousands of times, and then going, what did I learn? Right? Getting feedback on that, trying things. Try for a week to not be the first person to speak if you're a big talker, or to be the first person to speak if you're a person who holds back. See what happens. How did it feel? Have somebody coach you through that. And of course, reflect on that and learn, and then you continue to grow, and then we do that in community. We do that in community. We invite the community of the church to come alongside to help us to operate like guides in our lives to help us practice the way of Jesus. Okay, now, we're going to go to communion here, okay? And I just want to pray that God would give you insight and wisdom, right? We're just going to close like that. Like, there's an invitation to experiment and to practice the way of Jesus this week, to trust him and to practice his way. And that's what we're doing here in communion. We're coming to be reminded that Jesus has done what we cannot do for ourselves. He has given us access to a power that allows us to be trained to live out his way. But it starts with confession, right? It starts with acknowledging all the ways that we fail. But that's the point. You're going to fail, right? We, we are a failure-based religion here. It starts with acknowledging I am weak. I can't do this on my own. Jesus did all that I can't do for myself. And so I'm coming back to him to feast on his body and his blood that was shed for me. And this is true spiritual power. It starts right here. Help. Help. And so then we want to invite you here in just a moment to come down front. If you are a person that is okay saying help to Jesus, crying out for him to help you, learning to follow him and practice his way, we'll have stations here the front that'll have wine and bread, and then we'll have stations in the back that'll have grape juice and gluten-free options if you'd like that. And we just invite you to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and heal us. Come and transform us. Would you give us an insight, a word, a picture, an image, something? Would you speak to us? And would you begin the process of healing us and helping us practice the way of Jesus here this week in a more intentional way? And so I'm going to pray for us. We'll take some time to confess. I'll give us a prayer here to kick us off. And then you come as the Spirit leads. Father, we open ourselves to your life and to your love and to your presence and your power. We thank you that you've done for us all that we can't do for ourselves. Would you... Teach us, Jesus. You are the great teacher, the great rabbi. You are our Savior, our Lord, our Messiah. Would you come and show us and teach us who you are? Would you teach us who you've created us to be in you? And would you empower us? Give us your Holy Spirit power to think differently, to act differently, to will differently, to desire differently, to love differently this week, not because we're earning your favor, but because we already have it. And out of the abundance of your favor, God, we want to be more like you and live your life in this world for the good of our neighbors. And so Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, come and do what we cannot do in our own strength. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's pray this prayer of confession together, and then you come as the Spirit leads. Merciful God, 
We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen.
inner self is wasting away, and your inner self is being renewed day by day. For your light and momentary troubles are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As you look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For what is seen is transient, but what is unseen is eternal.
here to send you out in the next room. I just want to invite you to a couple of things. There should be a connect card around you. If you have questions or you want to chat about anything we've talked about today, or if you just want to come and pray, we're here, I'm here, some of our staff are here in different places. I, I know and I realize that it takes tremendous courage to ask on what Jesus says, that it is terrifying to act on what Jesus says, because some of us, all we know is this, and it's a lot easier to stay in Egypt where it's secure than to move out of Egypt into the promised land. And so maybe fear just starts with a moment of confession, just saying, hey, I'm not where I want to be. I have no idea how to practice a way that would lead me out of anxiety and anger and broken relationships and living out of my wounds to living in a place of more wholeness, but I would love to figure that out. And we'd love to hear from you and pray for you and help point you in the direction of some resources so we're here after this service to pray for you or talk to you. Also, TJ, can you throw that screen up, the last slide of my sermon there? Um, we have a, a resource that might be easy for you. If you're interested in doing this work on our website, there's a spiritual formation guide. And if you're interested in actually working through the process that I just described at the end, that's there for you. It's just a tool. You can download that and maybe spend some time reflecting on that and processing what is God's invitation to me? What are some of the barriers to that? What are some of the practices that might be available to me to experiment with? And what kind of community do I need around me to journey on that? We've created this as a tool for you. If that's helpful, please take it. If you're like, a, I need a visual kind of person, that's a visual roadmap for something that's very complex. Um, and if that helps, great. If not, you do you. Uh, but I, I like a way better than no way. Uh, so if that's helpful, you do it. Um, we're gonna send you out with the benediction now. Again, word for the road. So if you wanna lift your hands and receive an openness, Handedness and just a sense of God's presence with you leaving this place. Hear these words from Ephesians 4. Take off your former way of life, the false self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. The blessing of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you always. Thank you.